Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the Basic Podcast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast from a great podcast that got started in September called the Pediatric Emergency Playbook. Tim Horechko is a PZM doc from Harvard UCLA who has trained in both EM and PZM, so he knows his stuff and how to relate to all EM providers out there. I won't go into too much more about him here because he's included a short introduction talking about himself and the podcast. Today's episode talks about a scary topic, the undifferentiated sick infant. We reviewed what to do with a febrile infant way back when the podcast started, but Tim's episode takes it to a whole other level to help you consider other things that can be wrong besides sepsis. In fact, even though sepsis is by far the most common cause of sick neonate, sepsis is the very last thing you should consider in these patients to make sure you don't miss other diagnoses. As always, this podcast has been represented the views of opinions about defense, the U.S. Army, the Shoshaki Emergency Program. With that said, here's Dr. Tim Horechko on the undifferentiated sick infant. I'll cut back in at the end, but otherwise, it's his show. Let's get started. Hello, boot campers. This is Tim Horechko from the Pediatric Emergency Playbook. Let me start by saying that Steve Carroll is the man. As you well know, being a faithful listener to EM Basic, this guy works tirelessly to provide core content that helps us in our daily care of patients. I'm right there with you in enjoying this great program. Steve has been very kind to invite me here on EM Basic and to rebroadcast a piece I did recently on the undifferentiated sick infant. I hope you find it helpful and entertaining. If you like this episode, please visit my site at pemplaybook.org, and you're most welcome to subscribe to my monthly podcast where we cover the gamut from the everyday to the life-threatening to help us to be ready for some of our most vulnerable of patients. Keep up the great job with your training here on EM Basic, and please leave us your feedback. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and now on to the undifferentiated sick infant. What is fear? It's hard to explain, but it's easy to characterize. It can inhibit us. It can slow us down. Fear can paralyze us. It can prevent us from dealing with the task that we have on hand. And it's something that's insidious. It's not readily acknowledged, especially in our clinical work. Although fear can be powerful, it's something that we learn. It's something that we do to ourselves. We can either unlearn it through familiarity or mastery, or we can learn other behaviors that overpower fear, like confidence. The very young, very sick child is a real fear that many of us have. Today I'll tell you the story of Adam and the handy bedside tool that helped me to take what was a broad differential and distill it down into working parts. We'll take fear and transform it into a plan of action. You make tough calls when caring for acutely ill and injured children. Join us for strategy and support through clinical cases, research, and reviews, and best practice guidance in our ever-changing acute care landscape. This is your Pediatric Emergency Playbook. Welcome to the Playbook. I'm your host and coach, Tim Horechko. Adam is a seven-day-old baby boy who was brought in by his mother for two days of breathing problem, she says. This is her first child, but she seems relatively calm as she energetically pats his little frame. 
He's so bundled that her rhythmic and now nervous padding sounds like a soft drum as she shifts her body weight back and forth. She doesn't have any other relatives near her, and she says she brought him in just to make sure that everything was all right. She says her little boy, whom she calls Adan, has had some decreased PO intake today and has been increasingly fussy over the past day or so. The mother now seems a bit more frightened that you're asking more questions. Really, all of them are routine. But the reality of being in an emergency department with her newborn son is starting to take hold. She explains that everyone is sick in the house where she's staying. She has wide eyes and she awaits your approval and acceptance of this explanation. He was born full term, as far as we can tell, but she admits that she only saw a doctor briefly once in a clinic in Michoacan to confirm that she was pregnant. She arrived here from Mexico just a few days ago. As you ask her to unbundle her baby so that you can take a better look, you remember back to your pediatric assessment triangle. You remember this, it's the first step in PALS. The pediatric assessment triangle is a rapid global assessment tool using only visual and auditory clues to help us make determinations in three key domains. Appearance, work of breathing, and circulation to the skin. The combination of abnormalities will help us to key in quickly as to whether this child is in respiratory distress, respiratory failure, has a CNS or metabolic problem, is in shock, or is in cardiopulmonary failure. Now I'm telling you, this is something that I use every day with every child in the ED. If all of these domains, which let's just call arms of the triangle, are normal, then the child is stable and we have time to figure things out better. If just one aspect of any arm is abnormal, then we deem that arm to be abnormal. The pattern or combination of abnormalities of the arms will help us to identify the etiology of the presentation and to prioritize treatment. The PAT gives a name to our gestalt and even more importantly, arms us with a plan. So first, let's start with appearance. The child's general appearance is a critical piece of information, but how do we codify it? Well, there's a mnemonic for that. Tickles. All right, I know, this is pediatrics, just bear with me. T-I-C-L-S. T for tone, I interactiveness, C consolability, L look gaze, S speech cry. Let's start with tone. This is all age and development appropriate, so the newborn should have a normal flexed tone. His arms and legs are held flexed and adducted. He's like a little baby boxer. You'll know instantly if the baby is either hypotonic or hypertonic. Another example of an age-appropriate tone is the six-month-old baby who sits up and controls her head. The toddler wants to cruise or buzz around the room. The school-aged child should... Well, I guess nowadays a good sign of loss of tone is the inability to text or surf the web on a smartphone. I for interactiveness. This is also age appropriate. Does the two-month-old have his social smile? Is the toddler interested in what's going on in the room? The child may be upset in the ED, but if he's interactive or responsive to his mother, that's just fine. C, consolability. Now look, I cry a little sometimes inside when uh, at work, but hey, a cup of coffee and a smile from a nurse are all that I need sometimes to just console me. Same as it is for children in the ED. They may be scared, but they should be able to be comforted. 
A child who cannot be consoled at some point by his mother is experiencing a medical emergency until proven otherwise. An example of paradoxical consolability is the child with meningitis. He's more and more upset as you rock and pat him, but he eerily calms as you lie him flat. Basically, you're giving his irritated meninges a break. L for look gaze. Now, this can sometimes take a little bit of observation time, but we can often tell instantly whether the child tracks or whether he has that thousand-yard stare. S for speech cry. A vigorously crying baby could be a good sign when he's consolable, but when the cry is high-pitched or blood-curling or even a soft whimper, something's wrong. Remember, this is an ED, not a house of horrors. A little scared is okay, but a baby who's beside himself is not. If the child fails any of the tickles, then his appearance is abnormal. Okay, let's move on to a work of breathing. Remember, children are respiratory creatures. They're hypermetabolic. We need to key in on any respiratory embarrassment. Look for nasal flaring. Remember, this is when the nares will outpouch with every breath. Uncover the chest and look for retractions. Listen, even without a stethoscope, for abnormal airway sounds like grunting or strider. Grunting is the child's last-ditch effort to produce some auto-peep. Strider is a sign of critical upper airway narrowing. Look also for abnormal positioning, like tripoding or head-bobbing. And the last arm of the triangle, circulation to the skin. Infants and children are vasospastic. They can change their vascular tone quickly depending on their volume status or their environment. Without even having to touch the child, you can see signs of pallor, cyanosis, or modeling. If any of these is present, this is an abnormal circulation to the skin. Here comes the fun part. Let's put together the pattern of abnormality with a category of pathophysiology. This will help us to prioritize our interventions and drive our management. Everyone would agree that if your appearance, work of breathing, and circulation to your skin are normal, you have a stable child on your hands. We have time to figure out what's wrong with him. Take the happy Weezer. His appearance is normal, his circulation to his skin is normal, but he has some intercostal retractions. With only one arm of the triangle affected, his work of breathing, he is in respiratory distress. So, you get some nebs, maybe some oxygen, and then we can decide our next steps. Now, what if that same happy Weezer has been at it for a while and his interactiveness is now affected? Or maybe his look gaze. Basically, his appearance is now affected. The combination of abnormal appearance and abnormal work of breathing means that this child is now in respiratory failure. He doesn't have to be apneic to be in respiratory failure. It's just that his respiratory apparatus is not sufficient to keep up with demand. Now, we're getting advanced airway equipment to the bedside and aggressively treating this child. He's the sickest child in your department now. This is where the power of the PAT shines, to have the same terminology among providers. Instead of a rushed conversation to the ward or the ICU teams about how he came in, what you did for him, how he's doing now, you can clearly state, he was in respiratory failure, we've improved his clinical trajectory, but he needs closer monitoring. He needs a higher level of care because of his initial presentation. All right, so far so good. What if the child's appearance is the only thing that's off? 
His work of breathing is comfortable. His circulation to his skin is fine. Maybe this is the three-year-old who just isn't acting right, according to his mother. He has decreased interactiveness, perhaps decreased tone. This is altered mental status. This is a CNS or metabolic emergency until proven otherwise. Calling it for what it is, we rapidly check a blood glucose and look for signs of trauma or infection. You've just saved this kid from waiting behind others who are more overtly ill. You were able to intervene rapidly because you looked. Now, take the five-year-old boy who's in daycare, who has nausea, vomiting, diarrhea for the past couple days. You've seen this kid many times today, and you'll see him many more times in the next few days. He may appear well, but his circulation to his skin shows modeling. This child is in shock. Get that IV in, start fluid resuscitation. Don't make him wait. Now, let's make him sicker. His appearance is now altered. His work of breathing is impaired, in addition to his pallor, cyanosis, or modeling. This child is in cardiopulmonary failure. Call it for what it is and resuscitate him. Take over his airway after you've resuscitated him if he needs further support. We need to make that call, and we need to enact the right plan of action at the right time. Back to little Adan. You unbundle him and find that he has decreased tone and interactiveness. He's truly lethargic. His work of breathing shows subxiphoid and subcostal retractions. He's tachypnic. His skin is mottled. What does his PAT show? He is in cardiopulmonary failure. You spring into action, you call for help from staff, and follow all of the normal steps to neonatal resuscitation. IV, oxygen, monitor, check his glucose, keep him warm, start your resuscitation. It seems like in emergency medicine, we're constantly expanding our knowledge base and scope. But really, our jobs can be easy. We have two types of patients, the ABC patient and the H&P patient. The ABC patient is the one where we are intervening and reassessing continually, sometimes going down parallel diagnostic and therapeutic paths until our serial reassessments make one path clearer and more likely than the other. The H&P patient is the stable patient in whom we have the time to ask, what's your favorite color? Do you like SpongeBob or Elmo? And where does it hurt? We have time to figure out the H&P patient. The undifferentiated sick infant is the prototypical ABC patient. The history is limited and you must respond to what you find. You get him on a monitor, start fluids and get some vital signs. Temperature is 36.7, heart rate is 180, which is extremely fast even for a neonate. Blood pressure is 62 over 40, which is just above the fifth percentile for his age. And remember, it's the fifth percentile that is the cutoff between compensated and decompensated shock. He's right on that border, and this is not reassuring us. His respiratory rate is 70, and he's hypoxic at 90% on room air. In general, he's lethargic. He has a weak cry. HNT is normocephalic, atraumatic. He has a flat fontanelle. He has tears, and he has moist mucous membranes. His heart is fast, and that's all we can really tell. There's no way we can tell any murmurs at that rate. Lungs are coarse throughout. Abdomen is soft, non-tender. But you ask yourself, am I feeling a liver edge here? Extremities show three-second capillary refill. He's modeled. So what do you think? 
let's call it sepsis and call it a day. Antibiotics, admission. But wait, is that right? Have we done our due diligence for this most vulnerable of our patients? Let's use that bedside tool I mentioned to keep this child safe. The Misfits was the brainchild of two fantastic pediatric emergency physicians, Dr. Tanya Brousseau and Dr. Ghazala Sharif. If something doesn't fit, the child's a misfit, and the misfits will keep us out of trouble. T for trauma, H for heart disease or hypovolemia, E for endocrine emergencies, M, metabolic, I, inborn errors of metabolism, S, seizures, F, formula problems, I, intestinal disasters, T, toxins, and S for sepsis. Now, I've taken the liberty of rearranging the traditional order to have us think about sepsis last. Don't let sepsis make you stop thinking. Let's go over each of these separately. T for trauma. Was there some birth trauma, perhaps non-accidental trauma? Check for a cephalohematoma, and that's the one, remember, it does not cross suture lines. It feels like a blottable balloon. Look also for his evil twin brother, the subgaleal hemorrhage. This is that boggy, amorphous, just um, blot that looks like it crosses suture lines and can even change with position. This is a dangerous bleed. Do a total body check and get that baby naked. H for heart disease or hypovolemia. Is there a history of congenital heart disease? Was there any prenatal care or was there an ultrasound that was done? Does this child look volume depleted? E, endocrine emergencies. Could this be congenital adrenal hyperplasia with low sodium, high potassium, and shock? Look for clitoromegaly in girls or hyperpigmented scrotum in boys. Could this be congenital hypothyroidism with poor tone and poor feeding? Is there any history of maternal illness or medications? Maybe congenital hyperthyroidism with high output failure. M for metabolic. What electrolyte abnormality could be causing this presentation? Maybe DeGeorge syndrome with hypocalcemia and seizures. By the way, hypocalcemia can be seen in various children, children of diabetic mothers, premature infants, those born with hypoxic encephalopathy. I for inborn errors of metabolism. There are over 200 er inborn errors of metabolism, and really we can't know them all. But here's a good tip. Since there are only four common metabolic pathways that cause a child to be critically ill, we can focus just on those pathways. If you like mnemonics, here it goes. Searching for an inborn error of metabolism is like looking for A-U-F-O. A, amino acids. U, uric acids. F, fatty acids. O, organic acids. So if your ammonia, glucose, ketones, and lactate are all normal in the ED, then whatever this child is presenting with should not be explained by decompensation in his inborn error metabolism. S for seizures. Neonatal seizures can be notoriously subtle. Look for little repetitive movements, especially of the arms, called boxing, or of the legs, like bicycling. F. Formula problems. Now, hard times can sometimes prompt parents to dilute the formula, which can cause a dangerous hyponatremia, altered mental status, and seizures. Conversely, a rushed formula preparation 
can cause a co concentrated formula that may cause hypovolemia. I for intestinal disasters. When we think of necrotizing enterocolitis, we immediately think of premature infants. But 10% of neck can occur in full-term babies. Look for pneumatosis intestinalis on abdominal x-ray. Also, think about aganglionic colon or Hirschsprung disease. Remember, this is also prime time for volvulus. 80% of cases of volvulus will occur within the first month of life. T for toxins. Was there some maternal medication or ingestion? Does the mother have some extracurricular activities that we should know about? Is there some home remedy or medication used on the baby? Check a glucose and a drug screen and just screen with some non-judgmental questions. S for sepsis. This is saved for last. We'll always treat empirically the sick, neo, the sick neonate for sepsis. But just give yourself some mind space to think about congenital and acquired etiologies. After going through the misfits, we're left with two questions. Is this baby septic? And does this baby have congenital heart disease? Well, my friend, I'm here to tell you, it ain't easy telling them apart initially. This is where the intervention, reassessment, intervention paradigm comes into play. On the show notes, you'll see an algorithm to help us illustrate, but the main fork in the road is deciding whether the child is in shock or not. Clearly, Adan is in shock. So we give a test dose of normal saline as a bolus. Now, normally when we think of pediatric resuscitation, we immediately think of the 20 ml per kilo bolus, right? And that's true, but in neonates, we always start with 10 mLs per kilo exactly for this reason. Does this child have underlying cardiac anomalies? So you give your test dose. If the child is improved, then you know what? This is just likely sepsis. Give more fluids and treat accordingly. But what happened in this case? We gave little Adan the 10 mLs per kilo, and it had no effect on his heart rate, no effect on his blood pressure, and no change in the circulation to his skin. In fact, he seemed more tachypnic now. At this point, we need to seriously consider congenital heart disease as the main reason for his shock. But how do you pull that trigger? Maybe you're in a place with no backup. Maybe you're in a place where the fishbowl phenomenon is in full effect. Maybe you just need more information. Well, here's a test that's going to help us. It's the poor man's echo. It's the hyperoxia test. The hyperoxia test is the single most important initial test in suspected congenital heart disease. We can test the child's circulation by his reaction to oxygen by doing an ABG. So you place the child on a non-rebreather mask, and after several minutes, you perform an ABG. Now, ideally, you obtain a preductal ABG in the right upper extremity. You compare that to the one on the lower extremity. But let's be real. You need this test now. And that femoral artery is looking pretty juicy to you. In a normal circulatory system, the PO2 should be high. It should be in the hundreds and certainly over 250. This effectively excludes congenital heart disease as a factor. If the PO2 on supplemental oxygen is less than 100, then this is extremely predictive of hemodynamically significant congenital heart disease. If you're between 100 and 250, then we just have to make a judgment call, and I would err on the side of worst first. So here's how we remember this. 
If you're giving this child 100% O2 and he doesn't improve 100%, that is, his ABG is not at least 100, then he has congenital heart disease until proven otherwise. Well, what's the treatment? Well, really, it's rapid transport to a, to a facility that can perform an echocardiogram and plan for emergent surgery. But there's something that we might be able to do to help right now. Remember, many of these lesions are ductal dependent. We're not going to know that necessarily when the child comes in. So what if the child has an atrial septal defect and a patent ductus arteriosus that previously was offering some mixed venous blood into the systemic circulation? And what if it's failing now? It's closing. How do we chemically stent open that ductus? Prostaglandin. That's right. We start 0.05 micrograms per kilo per minute if the patient is less than four weeks of age. Now, really, this presentation will typically occur within the first week, possibly the first two weeks of life, but this is a relatively benign intervention and it could be potentially life-saving. So keep in mind for that first month of life, the crashing neonate. PGE can keep the systemic circulation supplied with some mixed venous blood until either surgery or palliation is decided. Okay, that sounds great, but let's get practical. First, we can't just order PGE from the pharmacy or find it in your Pixis. It's like typing in NACLH2O in your EMR and expecting to get normal saline. So we're not fans of using brand names in the playbook, but we do use them if it helps to clarify or it helps you to remember. PGE is marketed as Alprostadil. Remember that name, and it may save you some grief when the time comes. Two common side effects of PGE or Alprostadil are apnea and hypotension. Although there's some evidence that intubation may be avoided in children receiving PGE, we have to monitor them carefully. We need to watch them like hawks. We talk about resuscitation before intubation a lot in emergency medicine, right? We want to avoid that post-intubation cardiovascular collapse that can happen after we blunt the catecholaminergic compensation that we have and we start positive pressure ventilation, which will decrease venous return and cardiac output. Think of PGE as your resuscitative fluid. Titrate it up for effect, look for better perfusion, but watch for hypotension. Address the hypotension with norepinephrine or noradrenaline. Some older references may talk about dopamine, but this is more out of tradition than out of evidence. Norepi, noradrenaline. Give the child a brief period to react to your treatment, and if he so much as skips a breath, just intubate him, but be ready for further decompensation. These are very sick children, but you have all the skills you need to do the right thing. Trust yourself and arm yourself with little pearls like this to make things go more smoothly. So baby Adan was started on his PGE. He soon needed intubation, which was not unexpected. And a rapid cardiology consult resulted in an echocardiogram showing hypoplastic left heart syndrome which is the most common of these life-threatening congenital anomalies in the neonatal period. By the way, there's nothing stopping us from putting a probe on the child's chest and looking for gross abnormalities. Like, I don't know, a virtually vestigial-sized left ventricle. But we won't fool ourselves. The pediatric echocardiographer is the king or queen among ultrasonographers. Just imagine these tiny little structures. They're so difficult to find. 
and the heart is beating so fast. They're very well trained in this. So he was transferred to a center with pediatric cardiothoracic surgery, and his parents were given the choice to undergo palliative care, which has been the traditional route for decades, or commit to a series of surgeries that could give him a chance at survival. What happened to our little one? He successfully underwent the Norwood procedure, in which a neo-aorta is formed by merging the pulmonary trunk to the aorta and also by connecting the arch of the aorta back to the base of the pulmonary arteries via a Blalick-Tausick shunt. When he was six months of age, he was big enough and strong enough to undergo a bidirectional glen anastomosis, also called a cable pulmonary shunt, which takes the pressure off the right ventricle. The SVC is rerouted to dump directly into the pulmonary arteries, which helps with pulmonary forward flow as the child grows. The BT shunt is then removed at this point. When Adan was two, he was ready for the last phase of surgeries, the Fontan procedure, which connects the IVC with the pulmonary arteries, and also a little fenestration is made in the right atrium. This further takes pressure off the right ventricle and combats the increasing pulmonary vascular resistance. Now he's a happy, thriving preschooler whose parents' biggest complaint is that he plays too rough with his younger brother. Not just another case of sepsis, huh? Before you go, just one more thing. Let's touch briefly on a mental shortcut that we are all guilty of. The availability heuristic, or the availability rule of thumb. When we have decisions to make, we use the available information we have, we use prior experience, and we choose the right course of action as far as we can tell. When you see that your phone bill is overdue, you know you got to pay for it, and you know what's going to happen if you don't. The problem with decision-making is in the uncertainty. Perhaps uncertainty in presentation, or just uncertainty of what will happen if I make this decision. What if that rash really isn't an exanthem? Am I missing a dangerous, infectious, or hematologic emergency? You acknowledge the gray, but you make your best decision based on knowledge, experience, and you just make the best call that you can. The availability heuristic throws a monkey wrench in how we deal with the gray. As human beings, we don't like shades of gray to be stacked up next to each other. We like obvious black and white, or at least light and dark. The subtleties can get lost, especially in a fast-paced, overburdened environment. The availability heuristic is a tendency to decide on what comes to mind first, on what's just available to the front of your mind what you think of right away. Now, this is not necessarily a fallacy. We need shortcuts in what we do. But think of the last time you heard a lecture on, say, Ebola, and then suddenly Ebola was on your differential, however subconsciously, on all the patients that you see that day. Well, maybe not on your differential, but it's on the differential of the peanut gallery. Let's paint a picture of something more realistic. It's winter. You see bronchiolitis, you see pneumonia, and all types of shades of gray that cause increased work of breathing. You're milling through many patients, and you're feeling good about how fast you can go through the waiting room. Until one patient you see who seems a little more tired than he should be, but he's an otherwise healthy toddler who is otherwise acting normally. He's breathing fast. Well, that must be viral. It must be bronchiolitis. But he really doesn't sound too wheezy or crackly. 
Ah, you know, common things are common. It must be just that. Except you can't reconcile his fever that he now has, and he seems a little less interactive to you. He also has a normal oxygen saturation. He doesn't really have a lot of upper respiratory symptoms. And then there's that smell of peppermint that he has on him. Until you realize, hours later, that you sent home a toddler with aspirin toxicity and tachypnea. You call him back, his aspirin level is high, you start alkalinization, and luckily he doesn't need dialysis. The viral grab bag of diagnoses is just so available. It's just so in front of our face. We take a mental shortcut, and this time the cut was just a little too short. If we had slowed down enough, we could have lifted up his shirt, asked about that scented substance on his chest, and found out with some basic questions that the family had been treating his chest cold with frequent massages of oil of wintergreen. On the thin and easily absorbable skin of a young child, concentrated wintergreen can quickly deliver toxic levels of aspirin. Now, we've all had cases where our cognitive biases choked up our mental machinery. We just need to be aware that it happens and stay alert. As they say, you can have fast, you can have quality, and you can have cheap. You're just going to have to pick which of the two that you want. Can't have them all. Thank you for spending some time with me on the playbook. I really appreciate it. Please send me your comments, questions, suggestions to the website pemplaybook.org where you can leave a voice message directly from the website or email me. Until next time, remember, you are the champion for the child in front of you. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Playbook. We welcome your comments, questions, and feedback. Email Tim at coach at pemplaybook.org or drop by our website for show notes and more strategy at pemplaybook.org. See you there. Thanks so much, Tim, for that excellent review of the undifferentiated sick infant. While sepsis will be the most common disease you will encounter in this age group by far and should be at the top of your list, make sure to run your misfits mnemonic and consider all other possible causes of a sick infant. Be sure to head over to Tim's site at pemplaybook.org, that's P-E-M playbook.org, and check out all of his other episodes on such topics as pediatric status epilepticus, intranasal medications, pediatric RSI, and more. Before we go, let me mention our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. This month's EM practice is on accidental hypothermia, which is obviously very relevant for this time of year, and PZM practice is how to use ultrasound effectively in pediatric patients. As always, residents can get free access by going to the EB Medicine website, and attendees can get a great discount and support the podcast by purchasing EB Medicine at ebmedicine.net slash embasic, or go to the link at embasic.org. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic, signing off.